The sermon text for uh, this morning is Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And up to this point in the book of Joshua, and uh, really from Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, God showed himself faithful to his people. He made promises to Abraham, and he kept them. He brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He provided them with food and water in the wilderness. And in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, he had just led them through yet another miraculous crossing when Joshua and all of Israel walked through the Jordan River on dry ground. We know that for them it was a long journey as they journey from Egypt to the promised land, and they often stumbled along the way, but we see that God was faithful through it all. As the book of Joshua summarizes at the end, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Everything that God had spoken came true. And it's interesting because in our text this morning, uh, we read here that God did something very unexpected. And I want you to uh, picture the scene that's before us. Israel had uh, just crossed the Jordan River, and they crossed during uh, a time of year in which the river would have been flooding. Uh, and it would have been particularly dangerous to, to cross at this moment, at this time. And now we see that the first city that lay before Israel needed to be conquered, and, and that was Jericho. And so from a military standpoint, you know, the best strategy would have been for Israel to start charging toward the city and invade immediately. Um, you know, if we think about it, Jericho had probably been very confident that Israel would not have been able to cross the Jordan River. They would have been very confident that hey, they're stuck on the other side. They're not going to be able to cross for months, uh, we're safe for now. They thought they had plenty of time to prepare for the attack. And that's because they did not believe in God's power and in God's might. And so we see that all of a sudden, Israel was able uh, to cross. And they were able to cross not by a bridge and not by uh, some unknown safe crossing. But we see that they crossed on dry ground because God stopped the waters. Just as he had parted the waters at the Red Sea, the waters of the Jordan were stopped as well. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, that as a result of this uh, miracle, as a result of this demonstration of power, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. We see that the people in Canaan trembled. They trembled at the thought of God's power. Israel now had the military advantage, but rather... Rather than instructing his people to seize this moment, to seize this opportunity, and to charge toward Jericho, uh, 
see instead that God told them to stop and to wait for a few days because the people of Israel needed to get their spiritual priorities in order. They needed to worship God first. We see that during their uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel had uh, neglected some important aspects of the worship of the Lord. And it's as if now God told Joshua, you all need to go to church first uh, before you go to war. One pastor says that God does not function on our schedule. He instead has a way of making us bide our time. He's more patient than we are. God had some spiritual work to do with the Israelites before he had prepared them to lead them in battle. And loved ones, God does the same for us. He prepares us spiritually before he sends us out into the world. Because we know, we know that our battles are, are not uh, physical battles, but they are spiritual battles, that uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We, as Paul says, we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so God wants us to be prepared spiritually for the week that lies ahead of us after every Lord's Day. He wants us to be prepared spiritually for the days ahead, and that is why we consistently stop to worship Him, to renew our covenant with the Lord. Think about that as we uh, read our text now from Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. As soon as the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. 
And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Note first in our text as we consider these verses before us that God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. We know that circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, that it was a sign and seal for Abraham and for all of Israel that they were in covenant with God, that they were in this relationship with God. And part of that sign and seal involved that the fact that every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. Now, in the New Covenant, this sign and seal has been replaced with baptism. So uh, circumcision no longer has any religious value for Christians because now baptism is, is the initiatory sign of the New Covenant. That sign that we place upon our children and upon uh, new believers. Now, we see that the explanation for why the men of Israel, who were about to enter the promised land, were not circumcised is found there in verses 4 through 7 of our passage this morning. And, and the explanation is basically that the first generation of Israel's fighting men died during the 40 years of wandering to the promised land. Now, this was God's judgment against that generation. The writer of the book of Joshua uh, reminds us here about what happened to that first generation of Israelites whom God brought out of Egypt. He reminds us that that generation of people was characterized by unbelief, by a lack of faith. We know from the Old Testament that when the 12 spies returned from their reconnaissance mission, 10 of those spies had a bad report. They did not believe that Israel could enter uh, the land and conquer it. They said, because the Canaanites are too strong for us. See, even though God had given them the land, and even though God had constantly assured them that he would lead them in victory, that first generation lacked true faith. And so they perished in the wilderness. We read about God's judgment upon that first generation in Numbers chapter 14, verses 27 through 38. Numbers 14, verses 27 through 38. How long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness." And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for their faithlessness until for your faithlessness, until 
the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and they shall die. We see from this passage in Numbers that Joshua and Caleb were the only two male warriors who survived that wilderness experience. And it was just the two of them out of tens of thousands. See, loved ones, in this passage, we learn that God always has a remnant. And that remnant is sometimes very small. The word remnant means a group of people who remain faithful to God. And actually, this idea of a remnant is a common theme throughout the Bible. It's a theme that uh, no matter how bad things seem to be in the world, no matter how much uh, sin and wickedness seems to be winning out, uh, God always preserves a people for himself. That there has always and always will be a true church on earth, a faithful remnant preserved by God. In the days of Noah, for example, how big was the church? The church was only eight people. It was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and, and their wives. In fact, in describing the church and this idea of remnant that is found throughout redemptive history, uh, the Belgic Confession, it's a confession written in 1561, it says, Christ's church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from the fact that Christ is the eternal king who cannot be without his subjects. And this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small to human eyes, as though it were snuffed out. For example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 who did not bend their knees to Baal. And the example that the Belgic Confession gives is from the days of Elijah. We know that Elijah was a man of God, and yet he was often very frustrated by the sinfulness of Israel. And though God used Elijah to show his power to Israel, Elijah was often on the run because the wicked king Ahab ordered him to be arrested and to be put to death because Elijah would often preach against the sinfulness of the king. And so Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life, uh, despairing of hope. At one point in his life, he literally wanted to die. And finally, at, at one point, he broke down and said to God, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, only I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And what was the Lord's reply to Elijah in that moment of despair? The Lord said, Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel, all who have not bent the knee to Baal, and all who have not uh, kissed him, who have not uh, reverenced his statues. God said, Elijah, you're not the only one who is part of uh, the faithful remnant. I have others. I have others who I have preserved 
who have not worshipped other gods. And loved ones, uh, God assures us of this same thing this morning, that he always has a remnant, a true church on earth that he preserves against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small to human eyes. We might have uh, seen recent studies that show Christianity in America is declining and that not as many people in America today are identifying or self-identifying as, as Christians. Now, we can talk about how you know, Christianity is rapidly growing in, in other countries, but uh, let's think about America for a minute. Most of these studies that show a decline in Christianity is showing this decline and registering it among what we might call nominal Christians. Um, nominal Christians are, are those who once identified themselves as Christians because they went to church, perhaps you know, Christmas and Easter, and because it was advantageous to identify as a Christian for employment or for the sake of, of building community. But now in, in our day and age, in our culture in America now, uh, it's no longer cool or, or expedient to be identified as a Christian, and it's even considered a disadvantage many times. And so more and more of these nominal Christians are no longer identifying themselves as believers. See, it's like the spies who were sent out to survey Canaan. Twelve of them identified as believers as they were going out, but we realized that it was only two of them who were really true believers. The other ten, you know, when, when things got a little bit difficult, when things got uncomfortable, they quickly abandoned their faith. But those two, Joshua and Caleb, remained faithful because God preserved a remnant. And friends, God continues to preserve a remnant for himself. Don't get discouraged by the bad reports. There have always been weeds among the wheat, but we know that Christ's church will continue. He died to purchase a people for himself, and he died to redeem us from sin, and those whom he has purchased, he will never lose. He will never fall away. You and I can rejoice today and every day knowing that he will hold us fast, as we uh, sang so beautifully this morning. James Boyce writes, he says, do you find yourself to be the faithful minority in your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, and perhaps even in your church? He says, do not be discouraged. It has always been this way. God does not deal so much in quantity as in quality. Although the faithful are few in number, praise God that they are also many at times. There are nevertheless always those few, and they are meant to encourage one another. God always has his people. Secondly, we see from our text this morning how God explains the significance of the sacraments to Israel. In verse 9, we see that after all the men of Israel received the sign of the covenant, uh, God explained the significance of their receiving the sign in verse 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That place was from that point known as Gilgal because uh, the Hebrew word uh, galal sounds like 
to rule. And so God explained to Joshua that he had taken away the shame. He had uh, taken away the disgrace that the nations had toward Israel because of their slavery in Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness for uh, 40 years. You know, that Israel's reproach or their shame uh, would have come from the nations around them laughing, laughing at them and laughing at the fact that God had brought them out of Egypt uh, to go to the promised land, but rather than going there directly, we know that they wandered in, in uh, the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, if you look at, at a map, if the Israelites had headed straight for Canaan, if they had taken the shortest route, uh, after they left Egypt on the night of the Passover, they would actually have arrived in two weeks. But instead of two weeks, it took them 40 years because of their disobedience. And, and during those 40 years, uh, Egypt and the nations around Israel were laughing. Uh, they were heaping reproach on God and his people. Moses made this very observation. He said in Exodus chapter 32, verse 12, after Israel sinned by making the golden calf and bowing down to worship it, you know, that God was about to destroy Israel at that moment. And Moses interceded. And before he did so, God said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And what was Moses' response to God? Moses interceded for Israel and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with great might? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Did you notice Moses' prayer. His prayer was, uh, Lord, why would you give the Egyptians the opportunity to laugh at you and, and to say their God rescued them with evil intention, with the evil intention of simply slaughtering them in the wilderness and wiping them from the face of the earth. And now we see that 40 years later, God was rolling away that reproach. He was taking away the shame and and the reproach, because he was now bringing them into the promised land. He was fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham. They would no longer be identified as slaves or as a people who were abandoned by God. Instead, they would be known as Israel. They would be known as God's people. And we see in our text that all this began with their observance of the Old Covenant sacraments the sacraments of circumcision and of the Passover feast. It was there at Gilgal that Israel renewed its covenant with God and that God assured 
them that he had rolled away the reproach. He had rolled away their shame. God was in essence saying to Joshua, Joshua, don't carry the sins of your past into the promised land. I have taken away the shame associated with your sins. You know, when we celebrate the sacraments of the new covenant, when we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, Supper, uh, both of these sacraments also remind us, don't they, that God has taken away the shame associated with our sins. When we talk about shame as, as Christians, we know that uh, shame can uh, be a good thing because it can lead us to repentance. It often reveals the depravity of our sin and it causes us to flee to Christ. But for Christians, a shame we know can also be spiritually devastating. It can, it can lead to feelings of condemnation and, and to embarrassment because of our sin and knowing that even though our sins are forgiven, it's often these feelings of shame that keep us from joyfully living as the children of God, whom we are. Now, shame causes us to have a sense of distance from God, even though we know that our sins are forgiven. It's that emotional weight that we often carry around. And so God has added to the preaching of his word. He's graciously added two visible physical sacraments to show us that our shame has been taken away. It's not just the guilt of our sin that has been removed. Think about the fact that in baptism, when we administer the sacrament of baptism before us and we see the, the waters being poured onto the child or onto the new believer, it's a picture of our sins being washed away by the blood of Christ and of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the fact that we are new creations in Christ. That the old has passed away, the new has come. We ought not to carry our shame around with us, but to know that it has been washed away along with our guilt. And think about the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, we're reminded as we hold the bread, as we hold the wine in our hands, that Christ shed his blood to atone for our sins. And that that atonement... That atonement included his bearing the shame of our sin. That was part of his humiliation in his life for us. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross and the shame associated with it so that he might bear our sins before the Father. And so Christ, loved ones, Christ has rolled away our reproach. Burke Parsons, he's a pastor in Florida, he wrote, in Table Talk magazine, uh, Jesus Christ redeemed us not only from his wrath and hell in the future, but from having to wallow in the mire of guilt and shame in the present. Jesus promised not only eternal life in the future, but abundant life that begins in the present. Jesus lived and died not only for the guilt of our sin, but for the shame of our sin. He endured the cross despising its shame so that we would not have to wallow in shame as Christians. He has rolled away our reproach. Lastly, we note in our text that God gives us our daily bread, verses 10 through 11. I'll read these verses again so that we can familiarize ourselves with them. 
And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. You notice how these verses highlight the detailed care that God showed for his people. We know that when Israel came out of uh, slavery in Egypt and during those 40 years of wilderness wandering, we know that God provided daily for their needs. He provided manna for them to eat. We read about this provision in Exodus 16. Exodus 16, after Israel complained that they didn't have food, God told Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay down around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. But Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now that, that phrase, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, is significant because if you uh, read certain commentaries, many scholars have tried to explain uh, naturally occurring sources for this manna. Um, some have claimed that you know, this manna wasn't actually extraordinarily provided, supernaturally provided by God, but it was simply just a plant in the area, the byproduct of perhaps of one of these plants, uh, or it was a byproduct of one of the insects around Egypt, and I don't know who would want to eat a byproduct of an insect, right? But what we see instead is the biblical evidence shows that this manna, this bread that God provided in the wilderness was a genuine, divine miracle. Even the Israelites who had grown up in the area didn't know what it was. It was new. It was something that God has, had provided, and the Bible consist, consistently presents it this way. In Exodus, we read that Israel ate the manna in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, it wasn't the only thing that they ate, but it was one of the staples of their diet. And God provided it, we read, on a daily basis. Every morning, Israel would go out and, and they would collect it as much as they could eat. And then they did it again the next day and the next day for 40 years. Every day except for Sabbath days. God did not provide manna on the Sabbath days, so he commanded Israel to collect extra manna the day before so that they would have food on the Sabbath. We read that not all of the Israelites obeyed. God's command in this. Some tried to hoard the manna, but it spoiled quickly. Uh, some tried to collect it on the Sabbath. They went out to gather it, and it wasn't present, just as God had told them. All of this, loved ones, points to God's provision of daily bread for his people. 
And we see in our text this morning that when they enter the land, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, the manna ceased. Why did it stop? Well, because Israel was now eating off the produce of Canaan. See, God was still providing their daily bread, but now it was by ordinary provision of produce in the fields rather than by his extraordinary provision of manna from heaven. Other ones, God continues to supply our daily bread. This is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. He gives us day after day our physical needs. He provides what we need for life. This prayer, when we pray this, uh, uh, this phrase and give us this day our daily bread, it's our acknowledgement before the Lord that we know everything comes by his hand, that he is the one who gives us life and breath and everything. But we also know, loved ones, that in his grace, God not only gives us bread to eat for our physical strength, but he also gives us the true bread from heaven, which is Christ himself. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This bread that Jesus speaks of here in John chapter 6, this bread is his person and work. He's, he's talking about having faith in him, in who he is, and in what he's about to accomplish on the cross as he's speaking uh, to those whom he's preaching to. And he's saying that all those who believe in him will have eternal life because the nourishment he gives is not temporary, but it's eternal and it's spiritual. Jesus continued and said in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ, the true bread from heaven? Have you been seeking to find eternal life and satisfaction in anyone or anything other than Christ. Well, God calls you now by his word to turn and believe, to rest in Christ's words of assurance that he has come to give life and he has come to give it more abundantly. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness to your church in the Old Covenant a faithfulness that we see continues into the new covenant. Lord, we pray for the word that we heard preached today and for the gospel message that we heard in the hymns and the prayers and the scripture readings. We ask that you would cause this word to be received by glad, obedient, trusting hearts. Lord, may it not be snatched away by the evil one nor fall on hard ground or be choked by the cares and worries of life. But instead, we humbly ask you to water the seed of your word by your spirit so that we may all truly profit from it and bring you glory and praise in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.